Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, how might the U.S. reboot its Middle East policy and restore confidence in American power and influence. And we are joined today by the author of the historical backgrounder in this issue, Joshua Moravchek, fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of the Johns Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies and author of several books, including most recently, Making David into Goliath, How the World Turned Against Israel. Josh, thanks for joining us. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me on. All right. So let's start big here with just the opening lines of your piece at Strategica. Quoting you here, America's clout in the Middle East is waning, but this is not the fruit of an inexorable process divorced from human will, end quote. In other words, it needn't be so. So what have we done wrong to get here, Josh? Well, when I said that, there were two things. One was that there are a lot of other actors out there who want to reduce our influence because they want to expand their own, and that includes uh, Russia, Iran, and all variety of Islamist factions, and, and a miscellany of others. But the other side to, to that coin is that uh, our own uh, government has wanted to reduce our uh, influence. Uh, that was part of the uh, overall worldview and uh, program of uh, President Obama when he was first uh, elected. Uh, he he uh, was devoted to the idea that we had had uh, thrown our weight around too much in the Middle East and elsewhere, that we had had too heavy a footprint, that we had alienated a lot of people. And as I understand what he was thinking, it was that if we uh, behaved in a gentler, uh, less assertive way, then it would uh, appease people who are angry at us in the region. They would like us better. And in the end, we'd get along much better with people throughout the Muslim world throughout the Middle East, uh, and that would be uh, to our own benefit as well as to theirs. I think it hasn't worked out that way. Do you see any signs six years later that the administration may feel that it didn't work out that way? Any sign that they're maybe chastened by some of the failures that have emerged from that mindset? Well, I really don't uh, see that. I mean, th there's obviously one clear sign, and that's that. Uh, We've now undertaken this uh, uh, air campaign against ISIS or ISIL or the Islamic State, uh, whatever you want to call it. And uh, this is uh, something that the administration uh, got into uh, reluctantly. Uh, but it's been going on now for many weeks. Uh, uh, as, as of now, I read in the press that we've uh, carried out more than... Uh, 3,000 uh, air attacks on various targets in Iraq and Syria. Uh, so uh, there's, a, the, the, there's not a, uh, a, a new rhetoric. There's, there's not a, uh, a frank uh, a verbal acknowledgement that uh, something hasn't worked out well. Uh, but that action in, in itself... Uh, perhaps speaks louder than words uh, in, in saying that things aren't uh, as the president had uh, thought they would be. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a, 
a, a great deal of uh, th there are a great number of other actions that that uh, suggest that this uh, lesson hasn't gone very far. Uh, actions such as insistence that we will carry out this uh, uh, fight against ISIS uh, only by air attacks, and uh, if uh, that's not sufficient. Uh, for us to win that war, well, then we'll lose it. Too bad. Seems to be the president's uh, policy. Also, uh, the uh, insistence on sticking to uh, what was an arbitrary deadline for uh, uh, withdrawing most of our military presence from Afghanistan and uh, retreating back to a single base there. Uh, uh, and, and with already signs that that is uh, uh, tilting uh, the, uh, the the war in Afghanistan uh, on, in the direction of ultimately an, an unhappy outcome for us and for the Afghans. Uh, th these are other actions which suggest that uh, not enough has been learned. Since you have the historical piece in this is issue, let's talk for a moment about historical context because you talk about repeatedly in this piece the importance of clearly understanding the threats that we we deal with. And When it comes to radical Islam, radical Islam has been around for a while, but it hasn't always enjoyed the kind of purchase it now has in the Middle East. There was a time, for instance, not all that long ago when it was definitely sort of behind Arab nationalism in the in the pecking order. So as a historical matter – uh, what happened? To what do you attribute Islamism's sort of ascension to the top of the heap in the ideological struggle in the Middle East? I see an analogy between the rise of radical Islam and uh, the rise of uh, socialism or communism. Uh, the the uh, idea of socialism started gaining adherence in the middle of the 19th century, and the Communist Manifesto was published in 1848, and uh, the first so-called first international was formed in the 1860s, and the so-called second international in the 1880s. Socialism was a uh, an idea that had some popularity uh, over the uh, course of about three quarters of a century, uh, and and then. Lenin seized power in Russia, and he was able to uh, yoke the uh, capacities of a large state to this ideology. And suddenly, uh, the ideology took off as never before. It had different variations, socialism, communism, later Trotskyism, and so on. Uh, but they all uh, were energized by the fact that uh, a, there were the resources of Russia behind communism, and B, uh, that the existence of a real live socialist state ruling a large country uh, made people believe that this was a real possibility, and it energized all people around the world. I think we can draw an analogy from the, the idea of radical Islam was basically began with the founding of the Muslim Brotherhood and 1928, although you can find some antecedents to it, for example, in the Diobandi movement in India, 
uh, uh, that started some decades before, uh, and it did gain adherence over over a number of decades over the next uh, fifty years. Uh, but it was a, a very much a secondary actor, and as you said, uh, not as popular in the Arab world as Arab nationalism uh, for throughout those decades. And really, in, it had more adherence than communism, but still uh, on universities, among young people, thinkers, communism also had a lot of adherence in the Arab world. I would say that radical Islam was probably in third place for a period, at least among the, uh, the, the intellectual elite. Uh, but then uh, Ayatollah Khomeini seized power in Iran, and it had an analogous effect to uh, Lenin's seizure of power in Russia. Uh, first of all, it put the resources of a powerful state uh, behind uh, the spreading of this ideology. And secondly, even people who were not Shiites, uh, who, who were at odds with the Shiite, uh, with Khomeini's interpretation of Islam, but who were nonetheless Muslims, uh, saw this as proof that a Islamic state uh, could uh, really be brought into being in the modern world. And uh, that was a tremendously energizing factor in my view. So let's play this forward. You write in your piece, I'm quoting you here again, should the Islamists, either Sunni or Shiite, succeed in conquering a large swath of the Muslim world, they would use it as a platform for their campaign against the West that would entail violence on a scale eclipsing anything we've experienced thus far, end quote. OK, so how do you reckon the chances of that prospect? And I ask because you will hear some experts say that precisely because the Sunni-Shiite divide is so large, there will never be sufficient unity in the Muslim world to launch a sustained, durable campaign against the West. They'll just inevitably get distracted by the internal fractiousness. What, what's your take on that claim? Well, I'm not sure that unity is necessary. Uh, there was uh, uh, communism spread around the world and, and ultimately spread to rule at its peak about one-third of the population of the globe. And uh, yet it was always uh, 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 divided within itself. Uh, and, and it was you know, the, the, the Russians against the Chinese, the Russians against the uh, Yugoslavs, the Chinese against the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese against the Cambodians. Uh, but uh, despite uh, d despite that, uh, they were sometimes able to collaborate very nicely against us, such as during the Vietnam War, and uh, even when they weren't collaborating, or, or the Korean War, uh, and, and even when they weren't collaborating, uh, they were uh, doing their best to injure and uh, kill us. Uh, and uh, uh, so if, if people want to say, well, ultimately these people will not succeed in uh, creating their global new caliphate because they'll eventually break down in fighting each other, uh, I quite agree. These are people who are endemically uh, fabulously violent, and they will at various moments, as they are doing, uh, turn on each other, but they won't turn on each other to the exclusion of turning on us. Right, right. Final, okay, so final question for you. The terror attack in Paris occurred just a few days before we're recording this, well after your piece was published. Uh, every time we have an attack like this, we end up in a discussion about moderate 
Muslims, who they are, how many of them there are, what sort of duties they have to, to speak out in situations like this one. Um, to what extent do you think there is uh, sufficient strength or sufficient will amongst modern Muslims to be an effective countervailing force to the, to the radicals? Well, uh, <laughs> that's a $64,000 question. <laughs> I don't think well, – I don't think we know it. We, we, uh, on the one hand, we've seen uh, some encouraging signs, uh, and by which I mean the – it appeared in, in 2011 after the elections, the, the, the Arab Spring and then the elections – uh, in Tunisia and Egypt that were won by Islamists, that the majority of the populations of the uh, Arab countries were prepared to embrace Islamism. And uh, then we saw over the ensuing several years a, uh, a turn against the Islamist parties in uh, Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, that that uh, suggests that the majorities in those countries don't want to be ruled by Islamists. Now, that's one part of the story. But the other part is that uh, uh, the, the extreme radicals, the ones who are most violent, such as the people who carried out these murders in Paris, and who have been responsible for the you know, the whole the long litany of other horrible terrorist attacks? I uh, uh, have never had the support of a majority, but on the other hand, our our leaders are always uh, inclined, and our intellectuals, to downplay how much support they do have. We really do have uh, polls, such as the uh, Pew studies and occasionally some Gallup polls uh, of uh, Muslim countries. And by and large, these radical and violent elements uh, have the approval of something like 15 to 20 percent. That's a pretty large sea for them to swim in. And, uh, and while people in our world are uh, afraid of the radicals to some extent, I think the moderates in the Muslim world are even more vulnerable to them and even more afraid of them. So uh, there's going to be a big uh, struggle ahead if we can get to a point where these people, uh, the, the, the very violent ones, are really without some measure of popular support in their societies and where the societies can be you know, mobilized and a kind of consensus against them. Uh, that's what we want to happen. Uh, it just says in, in, in our own country, we have various miscellaneous radicals, both on the left and right, who have been violent, occasionally done bombings, what have you. Uh, but 99% of Americans detest them, and it, and it, it, and it keeps them very, uh, very marginalized, and it's terribly minor, uh, intermittent uh, uh, problem. Uh, and uh, the, to, ideally, what we'd like to see is the same thing in the Muslim world, in which those people are regarded as completely uh, out of bounds, and uh, and therefore they don't attract young men to 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 their ranks in large numbers, and aren't able to have the uh, acquiescence or support that that facilitates carrying out their terrible deeds. 
Uh, but we're a very, very long way from having that uh, in the Muslim world. All right. My guest has been Joshua Moravchik, fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of the Johns Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Josh, thanks for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.